Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I am Food & Wine Senior Editor Kat Kinsman, and today's guest has such an incredible story that I had to call in a ringer (laughs) to to help me tell this as well. Um, So we've got uh, Food & Wine Deputy Editor Mel Hanchi who is the countrywoman of our chef today, Josh Nyland, who uh, has St. Peter Restaurant, and also this incredible, for folks who are watching, um, holding up the book right now, this just extraordinary, groundbreaking new book, The Whole Fish. Welcome, Mel, and welcome, Josh. Thanks. I did joke that I was having a three-way this morning. (laughs) (laughs) It's really great to start the week this way. But so you um, actually interviewed uh, Josh for uh, what issue was this at Food Wine? So people can go back in their collection. I'm going to say it was our May 2019 issue, so our Beaches issue. Yeah. So if you want to talk about what this was about and what fish butchery is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you start. Well, I think... um, A little bit of context is probably useful. Uh, Josh is known in Sydney and increasingly around the world as that Aussie fish butcher. (laughs) (laughs) The one. (laughs) Um, And, you know, essentially what you're doing is using techniques and cooking and preparing and storing fish in ways that no one else is doing. Um, Can you talk us a little bit through that? Yeah, so... Well, yeah, context added to that. Uh, three years ago, my wife and I uh, opened St. Peter, um, and it was just the desire to have a little fish restaurant that I felt was missing in um, in the scheme of Sydney dining because, I, I mean, at that time, there was a restaurant that I used to work for, Fish Face, which was huge, <laughs> hugely popular, like a wonderful place, and I, I got the you know great fortune of working there for a, a few years, and you know that was where the underlying basin of technique and and all the details of fish handling came from, which once you get that kind of um, you know repertoire, I suppose, and basic technique, then you're able to expand upon that very quickly, um, and and creatively. So when we opened the restaurant, you know, Fish Face had just closed. And so that was, I suppose, that middle ground uh, place where you could go get a good piece of fish. And then besides that, there was kind of lower level stuff like takeaway fish and chips. And then there was like go and, you know, put yourself down to a 15 course tasting menu and hope for a few fish courses to mm-hmm. get some great fish. So we slid into Paddington uh, and, and we put this very small fish restaurant that seats 34 people in there. Used to be a sushi train. So, um, you know, it, it still had, you know, <laughs> the ideas of fish around the room. Um, but yeah, we were kind of blessed that the room gave us sandstone on one side of the room and brick on the other beautiful concrete floor. And we didn't have to do too much. I literally unplugged the fridges, cleaned them and then plugged them back in. Oh, like that's, God, that's kind of how we, how we yeah. went about it. Um, and my agenda for the place was always to use as much of the fish as I could. Um, you know, it started with like fish livers and fish roe and using the head and things like that. But, uh, very quickly the restaurant kind of became quite popular, like, and, and busy, which was wonderful. So a 34 seat place started doing like 60 and I'm like, oh my God. Wow. And, um, you know, and we got some great things said about us when we opened, but it was like six months in that, you know, with three chefs, 
myself was one of them. We were like, <laughs> this is really hard. Um, <laughs> and we had, to, we had a few friends helping throughout that time to get us through this busy patch, but the busy patch kind of kept going. So then I'm like, we need to double the staff. This is good problems. Yeah, it's yeah. good problems. Yeah. <laughs> so we doubled the staff in the kitchen. We, we had like seven chefs then, and then it kind of cooled off a little bit <laughs> and the shininess of being this brand new restaurant had kind of, you know, softened off a bit just because there's like a light festival in Sydney called Vivid, which is great for tourism, but it sucks everybody to the city. And so uh, we calmed down a little bit, but I had all these chefs and so my wage cost went like through the roof. <laughs> and um, But then my food cost dropped dramatically and the food cost dropping was indicative of all these extra sets of hands questioning why would we throw certain parts of the fish out just out of routine. So you know, uh, we came up with the iChip. That was kind of the first thing that we kind of thought of. You just said iChip, like that's a thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not like Apple's chip, but like it's, yeah, like an actual, yeah, fish eyeball that we um, started with because I felt like a fish eye represents confrontation in a nutshell with mm -hmm. a fish, like whether, yeah, slimy, soft, creamy, all that stuff that's not overly delicious for a Western palate. And that I kind actually of weirdly love fish yeah. eyes. Yeah, <laughs> and you essentially turn it into a prawn cracker. Prawn cracker, right? yeah. yeah. So the idea was like, how do I make this delicious for everyone? And so I thought, let's make it into a prawn cracker. Um, so we blended eyes, and we followed the same steps, and uh, we we got this wonderful crisp that's in the book. But um, you know that that was the real catalyst for the thinking. Asian cultures and, you know, everywhere around the world, there's certain cultures that celebrate a whole fish, but then how does that translate to a Western audience? Like, how do I get people eating fish sperm? How do I get them eating eggs? How do I get them eating, you know, the heads and livers and hearts and all that stuff? How do you get them eating fish sperm, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> we make, we make mortadella. <laughs> we make mortadella out of it. Mortadella? Which is, yeah, so mortadella sausage. And um, now it's on a barmy sandwich at Fish Butchery. So there's... You know, the the thinking behind using all these secondaries uh, of fish or perceived waste um, has been born out of how to make it really delicious and not just shock value. And, you know, I don't want to be this crazy guy just doing, you know, weird stuff mm -hmm. for the sake of doing it. I need people to kind of feel comfortable, have a sense of humor, and then also see a lot of technique uh, in what we do. Yeah. And there's a lot of mathematics in that yeah. too. I think, you know, when we spoke, you said, Traditionally, 40% of yeah. the fish is, it well, like, ends mean, up in the trash. Yeah, you look yeah. at a round fish, and I say round because you've got rounds and flat. Um, you know, round fish have... What kind of fish are round fish? Like your brims and snappers and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whitings. And I, I have no context in terms of American fish right now. But, um, you know... <laughs> like the, Nemo. <laughs> yeah, like two, but, but two fillets as opposed okay. to four sure. that are on a, a flat fish. So, uh, <laughs> like Nemo. The, uh, <laughs> no, so uh, but the, the perceived loss on something like that is around 55 60 percent okay. like that's kind of common um and and so what you're left with then is 40 or 45 percent fillet yield and so i've never i have no idea how we've normalized throwing half a fish in the bin um, where does that come from it feels immoral <laughs> frankly well it is and like but if you think about you know a family out in the hills of italy and like killing a pig for their family would you ever consider taking two loins off the back of a pig and throwing the rest in the bin it's kind of 
<laughs> it's not a thing. Um, but this is what we've kind of cornered ourselves thinking that a fish only offers up two fillets. So my agenda with the book, with the restaurant, with the butchery now, and all conversation that I have is just stop putting fish in the bin. And part of that, you know, desire to just waste things is born out of really poor handling of fish. So this common global a way of handling fish that we've seen for centuries is to take a fish from the water and then when we gut it and scale it and clean it and all that sort of stuff, it goes under a tap or it gets dipped into a pool of water. And the reason why we do that is just we think that it's come out of water so it's cool to put it back in water. And it's absurd. Like, it's a ludicrous system. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, have you ever walked into a meat butcher anywhere in the world and see them dipping meat in water? No, like, I like unless they're like aging a steak in bourbon, like yeah, like, like washing it and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but, but like, no. how would you take a lamb shoulder off like the carcass and then dip that in water, yeah. and then just... put it on ice and then try and sell it over ice? Like that's just not a common theme. <laughs> you are and reframing so... so many things in my my brain right now because yeah. I'm thinking of like a butcher case uh, versus a fish case. Yeah, and... and the fish case like standardized everywhere is that slanted glass with mm -hmm. ice on it and. It's just, it, it's, it's completely, the system's flawed, like, with that. And to continue handling fish in this way will see us ever working in this four-day window of opportunity where a fish is, you know, at its best, so to speak. And there's restaurants around the world that kind of buy fish and only work with it with day one, day two. And then if they don't sell it, then it's used for a family meal or it's used for something else. But the immediacy of this fragile ingredient is, you know, really tight. Um, but I'm suggesting through good handling, you benefit from, you know, 90, 95% of the whole fish. And as well as that, you benefit from a significantly longer shelf life and I mean that with tunas and mackerels and swordfish and more oily and dense kind of fish, I can have a shelf life of up to one month without the use of any preservatives or salt. Wow. So actually <laughs> yeah. that was going to be, you know, my next question. If you like made your name, you know, using the scraps of the fish and all yeah. the offal, but then what really I think cemented an interest and a following in you was this idea of dry aging yeah. fish, which seems so counterintuitive to the way that we grew up. Totally. With fish, Especially, yeah, like in Australia, fresh yeah. fish, old fish. Yeah, you know. that's right. Um, and yeah, it was <laughs> all these connotations towards butchery, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but the dry aging thing, it's not... Some people kind of think all I do is kind of take a fish and then dry it out and then, then serve it. The, the agenda with it is to find a sweet spot where a fish tastes more articulately of the species that it is. Um, and you can oh, do is that. Is like a concentration of that, like finding an essence of it? Yeah, or? it's trying to yeah. distill what it is you're eating so that when you come into my restaurant, then it's like, I understand that I'm eating Dorado and not, you know, a, a bass. Like you can actually take away like a perspective of flavor as opposed to, yeah, yeah, we had some white fish and it was tasty and nice. Like <laughs> it's, I want to be able to give people an understanding of what a fish tastes like. And the reason that's important and why the method of handling is important is you can bring desirability to secondary species through mm -hmm. articulating flavor as opposed to taking something that's perceived as really shitty, like a mullet or like a mackerel that is just doesn't have desirability on like a big scale. And if you can handle that really well and you can eliminate ammonia, which is fishy fish odors, mm -hmm. if you can eliminate that, then you're going to have a better experience with it. 
and it's going to behave better when you're cooking it and you're going to have a significantly longer shelf life kind of you know storing it and what does that dry aging process look like i mean people who visit your instagram will have seen enormous sides of fish hanging on (laughs) on instagram yeah yeah. it's (laughs) it's it's artistic and it's informative it's what is your and visceral and playful and i love that word visceral what is your handle so it's mr nyland so mr nyland um (laughs) but yeah so yeah it's like fish porn for um (laughs) it's um the no, so like that looks like, what does that look like for somebody who hasn't seen it? Basically, we work with wonderful fishermen all around Australia and all the fish that we handle is from Australian waters. It comes in whole with the head on and the, the guts intact and all the scales on. And we've got our wonderful business now, Fish Butchery, which was only born like 18 months ago. And we did that out of a need for more space because as you know, like this little sushi train on Oxford Street just had one fridge and, um, you know, it's really tight. And so I needed a little bit more leg room. And so rather than opening another restaurant to, uh, you know, where the expectation was, where's Josh? Is he cooking my fish tonight? It, I right. kind of needed a production space where I could uh, make the restaurant that I had, uh, that I have more efficient and, and also employ some more people and provide some more opportunity for the people that work with me. Uh, so we took this space, which used to be a hair salon, uh, and we turned it into fish butchery. Um, so I got a hair salon and a sushi train, which is cool. Um, <laughs> but the fish comes in, we cut the scales off the fish as opposed to using like the bear trap on a stick that everybody knows like that you, you say that like everybody <laughs> okay what is this i thing? think it's so a scrapey thing <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> no so like you know like it looks like a you know like a farming tool yeah. like to you know <laughs> turn your turn your soil over but like it's you know the scaler that you you would usually just rip scales from tail end up to the head and you scrape and scales flick everywhere and they go into your curtains at home and they go everywhere <laughs> um so you know, uh, the, the problem with that kind of scraping uh, of scale, what that does is it, like, it interferes with the integrity of the flesh, like basically. So I'm not saying that immediately after scaling a fish like that, you would have a bruised, damaged, soft fish. Yes, it impacts it a little bit, but if you have the ambition to store it days after, then you would notice that that bruising would become more pronounced. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and also usually what happens is you scale it vigorously, scale goes everywhere, it's really messy. And then that's when a hose gets involved and you hose everything down, you dip it in water. And the problem is scale sits inside this honeycomb membrane, basically. Like if you stretch a scale out, like the, the membrane out, it looks like honeycomb. And so if the scale flicks out of it, then you've got this little chasm, this hole uh, where the scale used to sit in. And then if you wash it, that hole fills with water. And even if you go and wipe the scale membrane down, once the actual scale's flicked out, you'll leave a little pocket of water underneath the skin itself. And so that is like leaving behind this moisture, which oftentimes gets wrapped up in plastic, like a fish will get wrapped in plastic or to get wrapped in cloth. And what you've created then is this insulated little atmosphere of gross fishiness that will only get worse (laughs) yeah and i'm sure a lot of you listening and also you both have purchased a fish where you know it's been washed and Mm -hmm. you know it's wrapped in plastic and then put in a plastic bag you get in your car you drive home no one's buying fish that morning for two days time everybody buys a fish in the morning for their dinner that evening um you know we have no desire to leave fish in our fridges longer than a day just Mm -hmm. because 
those odors just get too much. And so you get home, you open the bag, you go to cook the fish and it's like, whoa. Mm -hmm. And it's usually just a waft of fishiness and it might not be intense enough to like go, wow, that's gross. It'll just be like, okay, fish. And you know, and it's standardized. Like we're just normal to it. Yeah, my dogs come running into the kitchen. My, but my, my husband has such a visceral reaction, again, that word visceral, yeah. reaction to the smell of fish that it puts him off everything else. But I've realized that if I kind of conserve fish in particular ways and don't necessarily tell him various things yeah. that are happening, he loves it. Yeah. But if we can avoid that reaction, that would get him eating so much more fish. Yeah. I feel like a common refrain you hear all the time is like, oh, I like fish, but I don't like fishy fish. fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and what does first... that even mean? <laughs> well, yeah. And to get mm. geeky on it, there's an organic compound yeah. in fish called trimethylamine. And when a fish dies, that converts into trimethylamine oxide. And then through that trimethylamine oxide getting broken down, it converts into ammonia. And ammonia is what fishy fish is. And... Th- what I'm suggesting is the only way that trimethylamine oxide breaks down rapidly and, and severely is through this really poor handling by using water and inconsistent temperatures throughout, you know, the point of capture through to point of putting it in a fry pan at home. Um, you know, there's this cold chain management that needs to be consistent throughout the whole time. So that leads us back to kind of that scales coming off. And I cut the scales off using a knife. It's not a new uh, technique by any means. It's a Japanese technique that's been done for centuries, and it's um, it's called subiki uh, in Japanese cuisine, and and it's about cutting yeah cutting the scale off. Usually, that's done purposefully for preparations of sushi and sashimi, so that you're not interfering with textures. Like so important in that cuisine to make sure that the fish texture is complementary to the rice texture, or you know purposeful to the dish that they're trying to create. And I asked the sushi chef that taught me that years and years ago at Fish Face, why don't we cut scales off all our fish? And then he goes, because that's a waste of time. Like, you know, oh. you're about to cook it, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's different. You don't have to worry about that. It's This is done because we're doing it a, a special way for sushi and sashimi. And I'm like, okay, cool. And, like, kind of buried it. And mm-hmm. then when I had my own place, I'm like, right, we're going to cut all the scales off. <laughs> because <laughs> this is, this I think... It's time. Yeah, and it's like... So, so now, you know, you've got like 10 people at Fish Butchery and my staff and everything, they're all, they're all cutting scales off fish. And it's incredible to watch that craftsmanship um, of these young people uh, all, all doing this on repetition. And it's like incredible to watch. So once the scales come off, then we gut the fish. We, we take all the organs out. We take it out in one piece, which I suppose is a little bit unique, where we grab the gills we pull all the organs out in one piece and we can kind of visibly look at it, articulate where things are. And what we've worked out is we can use every single part of a fish except for the gills uh, and the gallbladder. Goodness. So, and the scales, can you do anything with them? Yeah. So we, Tell us, uh, we, we cook them a few times in water just to kind of, you know, they never, they never really soften down per se, but they just cut, like they soften down a little bit and we boil them up three times um if we choose to make them sweet which oftentimes we do we change on the fourth time we blanch pardon me on the fourth time we blanch the scale we change it to 50 50 sugar syrup uh, and we cook the scale for that last time in in sugar and then we dry them out and then we deep fry them and then you end up with something that's very similar to like frosty cereal 
um, which is kind of cool. Uh, and and then if you wanted to go savory, don't do the sugar thing. Obviously, we dry them out, we deep fry them. And at, at the moment, we're putting vinegar powder on them. So they're kind of like salt and vinegar fish scales. So it's kind of like a cool little bar snack that you can do, but also one that you can roll a really soft vegetable like a pumpkin or like, you know, celeriac or something. You can roll fish scale around it and texturally it just adds dimension to the plate of food that you're doing. And as well, it's kind of joining the dots with, okay, you're eating a piece of, you know, bass and its scale and its liver and you can, you know, build this dish which celebrates one fish on one plate and that's the mantra of of what we do. So to the organs, once the gill and the gallbladder comes out, which I literally can't can't do anything with yet. Um, and <laughs> I was, I, I yes. there was a yet and there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so then we we decipher this organ down into stomachs, intestines, spleen, roe or milt, being man, boy or girl, <laughs> depending <laughs> on what the fish is. Um, you know, spleens and hearts and livers and uh, intestines and stomach and blood uh, as well. And recently found kidneys. Um, as well, which Fish is super kidneys. cool. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so once we've got that and obviously then the labor, like I referred to before about the labor cost shooting up so high, um, you know, the labor involved in sifting organs and cutting scales off fish and handling fish in this way is totally inefficient to the model that currently exists. And I'm suggesting that it's a much better way, but for the world to start operating on that level, <laughs> like yeah. to start doing that would put a handbrake on the whole system and it would, um, you know, slow, slow, it would slow down a lot. But I feel like if it was done for a period of time and then normalized into mainstream, then we would be off and going again in a far better way. But even if people look at this system that we've kind of created and take 10%, then we're in a better place than we, we are now. Um, and so once the fish is all cleaned out with paper towel, and at times we've used a toothbrush to scrub the bones back and stuff to make sure it's really clean. Once it's all paper towel wiped, we put a hook in the tail and then we hang it in our cool room. Uh, and our cool room now at Fish Butchery has been spe uh, specifically uh, developed to uh, sit between zero and minus two degrees. And it doesn't have a fan blowing inside. Um, and, and we've worked off, you know, like a deli fridge kind of thinking, which is it's usually got this motor built into the roof of like the deli fridge and then it forces cold air down the front of the glass and then it returns back down. So, you know, that's why ingredients in those kind of fridges never really dry out because there's a fan. Mm. It's usually a fan blowing uh, cold air over it and then everything dies and shrivels up and things. So we needed a cool room which didn't have a fan so that we weren't taking so much moisture out of the fish because the agenda is to try to mature fish while still making it taste like day one kind of you know, control. So we're not trying to do, you know, funky, you know, cheesy, you know, flavors that you can develop with meat. Like you, what we're trying to do is prolong day one, uh, you know, moisture, like uh, succulents. And like, you're always wanting to give somebody a juicy, beautiful piece of fish that has moisture. But what you're trying to do is take away a percentage of moisture to promote more of the fish's fat to articulate the flavor of the fish. And what happens through maturation, through time, you develop glutamates in the fish, which make the fish more savory and more complex and develop that umami, kind of that U word that we all hate, but <laughs> the, the kind of savoriness and yeah. characteristics of a fish, which we've never really kind of um, 
associated fish with because like I was saying before, ammonia is kind of built from, you know, what we're saying, like fishy fish. Um, the only way to offset ammonia is through the use of acidic ingredients. And hence why we've got a repertoire that dates back centuries celebrating acidic ingredients with fish. And I'm not suggesting that is a bad way of going about it because I'll be the first person to dip fish and chips into tartare sauce or like mm -hmm. squeeze lemon on it. It's delicious, but it's not the only way. Um, and I feel like handling fish in this way offers up, you know, a plethora of ideas. I'm curious, for both of you as Australians, mm -hmm. if you can speak to this, if the Australian palate, I know the huge generalization, huge country, cool. more uh, fish centric than possibly Americans are. Mel, you probably, because you live here, you, you might have a perspective. Yeah, uh, from the consumer side, I would say yes, because most of the population in Australia is concentrated around the, the coasts. A little bit. Yeah. Um, so I feel like fish is really accessible. Um, there's a deeper affinity. Like yeah. there's this kind of sense of, um, not nostalgia, because that's a bad word as well, but like this kind of emotive feeling around, oh, my uncle used to take us out fishing on a boat and, you know, best piece of fish I've ever had was on the back of a boat and I just cut a bit off and I ate it and that's the best ever, um, mm. you know. The people will often, when people ask me, what what is Australian food, like what is Australian food, what is Australian food culture? There are a lot of different answers. Yeah. Um, and ben a lot of different influences and waves of immigration have influenced that. But if I th think about you know, food that speaks specifically to Sydney or the coast or coastal Australia, I feel like seafood is such yeah. a big part of Australia's heart, yeah. food culture. Yeah. And I mean, Ben Shuri from Attica mm -hmm. um, just like had the most incredible conversation at Food on the Edge in Galway where oh, I just God, was. I love that conference yeah. so much and really great ideas come out of yeah. that. And I, and I think that's where it's so important that you're bringing this kind of message yeah. because then it ends up filtering out to so many other countries. Yeah where this is going to be revolutionary. So I was very fortunate that I got to speak there, but in particular, Matt Stone from, from um, uh, Oak Ridge in, in Victoria, he used to do Greenhouse or still does. Oh, um, yeah, Greenhouse. I which is that. phenomenal. Yeah, um, I you just know. sat down with uh, Douglas McMaster, who yeah, also is on that Silo same... And, yeah, on yeah. the same type of do not waste a single thing. Yeah, <laughs> and so those boys are incredible. But like Ben spoke very passionately and emotively about, you know, what is Australian cuisine and, and referring a lot to... Uh, the indigenous uh, community that have been there. And he spoke in depth about how, you know, Aboriginals were, were feeding off, obviously, the land, and um, but a lot from the sea. They were grilling shellfish and, and oysters and, and seafood because that was the, the source of their diets, a huge source of their diets. And it'd be not doing Ben's conversation justice to try to remember what he was <laughs> talking about, but he was talking about bimbles, um, which what? is like a little, um, it's like a blood clam, like a cockle. Um, and and he said clam. he tried to cook them at his restaurant to, to no avail, and he kind of wrote it off. And then he had, you know, an elder cook um, uh, them for him, and half an hour later, buried in coals, and it went jet black, <laughs> you know, um, they... they got all the black off the outside and ate it. And he said it was phenomenal. So, you know, there's, there's so much history in Australia that we don't even get to interact with because it's not being communicated enough. And I think that's what's made Ben really special in terms of pushing forward uh, this awareness of, of history in terms of Australian cuisine, because that question gets thrown around in every conversation, like what is Australian cuisine? And I feel like Ben has really um, pushed forward the conversation that needs to be happening. So. And articulated yeah. it really well. Very well. Yeah. Better than me. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, I think what you're doing is so incredibly important and is going to go 
such a far way toward eliminating uh, waste of food, which is, I think, increasingly part of the conversation and really, really needs to be. I can't, I'm sort of projecting, a hundred, you know, 50 years into the future or something when this is trickling down to home cooks and we're looking into the freezer. Because, you know, in, in the States we grew up with, you know, fish, frozen fish fingers. And that yeah. was kind of... I mean, the, I did too. Like, I yeah. wasn't like that spoiled kid on a wharf somewhere eating King George Whiting sandwiches. Like, <laughs> you know, I, it was kind of you know, tin tuna, tin salmon, mm. fish fingers, fish pies, like, yeah. you know, and I had no bearings over the fact that salmon was like a big fish and tuna was even bigger. Yeah. Like uh, first asparagus that I ever ate was in um, like a jar. Like oh, yeah. I didn't know that like asparagus was a fresh thing until I started working in kitchens. Um, yeah. So there's probably like a, a nice place to like switch gears now. Yeah. Cause I know that in terms of um, learning about fish and seafood that uh, your mentor was your chef, the chef at Fish Face, Fish Face Stephen, yeah. um, and you know really mentored a lot of your technical skill. Yeah. Um, but I also know that he was you know known as a bit of a firebrand <laughs> in the kitchen, <laughs> a little potty mouthed, like quite a, a vibrant, <laughs> effervescent kind of a guy. <laughs> I just say that every conversation <laughs> I've had with Australian people in the last like two months that I've done, the phrase potty mouth comes up. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, he, he had um, a very particular leadership style. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious how that affected you yeah. as, a, as a young chef and how it's informed the kind of leader you've become yeah. in your kitchen. I mean, Stephen, yeah, one of many of my mentors, but, but in particular one who, who gave me a very formative foundation in terms of fish cookery. Um, he's a hyper-passionate kind of guy when it comes to fish. Um, he is probably one of the most significant fish cooks on the planet and, and doesn't really get the airtime, I suppose, that some chefs do now, but he's so technically correct in his craft. And that is what I took away from the experience. There was a lot of noise, and I'll say noise in inverted commas, around <laughs> the, the whole vibe of being at Fish Face. Like I was 19 when I started there, mm -hmm. but I was 15 when I first met Stephen. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was a, a very, you know, it was a challenging experience to say the very least. And, and I, you know, there were days where I was like, my God, this is excruciating. Um, but then others where it's like I couldn't get this kind of information anywhere mm -hmm. else on the, in the world. Um, but... To give you a little, in a nutshell, uh, of Stephen, you know, there would be customers that come into Fish Face, um, you know, and he would cook fish very purposefully underdone. Like he would cook fish medium rare. That was always the agenda to try to get people eating fish lesser cooked than what they'd ever experienced before because, you know... Uh, it's just usually the assumption of fish is kind of dried out and chalky and not so great. Um, and so we would go to the extreme lengths. Well, I'd say Stephen would go to the extreme lengths of really underdoing the fish. And so we would send the fish out and he would suggest that you ate the fish from the thinner side of the fish through to the thicker side. And that's a mantra that we carried. We have carried on to St. Peter uh, to make sure that customers are aware that they should start at the thinner side, obviously, because that's where it's cooked through first and then as you make your way across it the, the heat that is residual will continue to cook the flesh it makes sense but then to do that some 15 20 years ago um you know at the restaurant that he was at previous as well and to suggest that you should do that customers kind of either cut you off and go yeah yeah, yeah just leave me alone <laughs> or just uh okay sure and they did it and most like very like 90 percent of the time it was perfect and people were like it was a transformative kind of experience of like my god i've never had anything like this in my life and 
and then other times where people would cut you off and be like totally not wanting to be told and then cut the fish in half, like through the middle, mm. only to expose this very raw flesh. And, you know, he would have people come in and do that. And then they'd be like, it's raw, it's undercooked. They'd give it to the waiter. They'd come back. They put the plate on the pass and then, you know, the waiter would kind of go to Stephen, look, it's undercooked. Can you do it again? And then Stephen being the potty mouth fire, <laughs> fire, fire, fire brand. brand that he was, <laughs> you know, oftentimes he'd either break the plate or he'd kind of, um, you know, get really upset to the point where he would grab the heat lamps across the pass and use it as like a, a big spotlight and then just hold it over the person who had just sent the fish back and tell them to get out of the restaurant. Whoa. So, I mean. Some Marco Pierre White stuff going <laughs> yeah. on in there. So, uh, I mean like what I what I'm doing now and what I get to kind of talk about and celebrate and all this sort of stuff I have the power of Instagram to kind of communicate on a global level what we're doing at the restaurant and what we feel is interesting and unique and a lot of that conversation has stemmed from this this kind of belief of what Stephen had and other chefs in Australia like Neil Perry and like Greg Doyle there's all these like you know huge name chefs in Australia that some 20, 25 years ago when they were game changing chefs in Australia and still are, they didn't have the power of that immediacy of social media to, to broadcast messages. Like these guys were the ones that were cutting out the middleman driving to the airport to pick their fish up and then put it in their car and then drive it back and all to get a better product, all to get a more sustainable product. And I feel like, you know, if Neil Perry or Stephen Hodges was in their car with a fish in their boot taking a selfie going, I just picked my fish up, mm -hmm. that would have been a significant moment globally to, to witness and, and the same kind of conversation that we're having now would be had. But I have a wonderful opportunity right now where I get all these dots lined up in front of my face and I get to draw a line through it and make sense of all the techniques and all the work and, and everything that's ever happened um, with fish in Australia. And now I get to push it forward, which is, you know, a, a wonderful opportunity. And I'm very fortunate um, that I get to do that. Well, the work of a chef has changed. In, Hugely. In, it, cause it used you to need be a PhD now, right? Yeah, yeah. It, well, it used <laughs> to be that you could be back there cooking you know, cooking the food, maybe people knew who you were or they weren't. But now it seems as if there is this uh, this need uh, to be an advocate of, of something, of your food way, of you know, whatever it, it happens to be. And whether it is about how you treat people in your restaurant, whether it's about what you're doing with your fish, that you have this obligation as well. And it feels like this kind of this this moment right now this is the first time it's coming up some people are some of older chefs are maybe having to figure it out and retrofit that but uh this new uh area of communication has opened up and both of you are restaurant owners and have been able to articulate what goes on the, behind the scenes in a really meaningful way can we talk about the responsibility yeah. of, of doing that where you yeah. could just be serving up nice food yeah. and and doing that but you know uh i've you know i've, yeah, I've you seen can. you both put things on on your instagram on your, your public feeds saying like this is what happens and putting some of the the uh, responsibility on the guest on the consumer and letting them know can we talk a little bit about that relationship with yeah. the guests um we're very we're very open with our customers but we're we have a restaurant in the US that we voluntarily pay our staff a living wage um, of $15 an hour. Minimum wage in Pennsylvania is $7.58. You can garnish that down to about two fifty-eight mm -hmm. if tips are involved. Um, but we wanted to put a stake in the ground and said to ourselves, if we cannot build 
paying our staff a living wage into our business model, then we shouldn't be in business. Mm. And so that has kind of become a really important hook for us. And everyone at our restaurant, and it's a tiny Aussie cafe, it's <laughs> nothing on the amazing operation that you run. Um, but whether you're um, on the floor, whether you're back of house, whether you're a chef, whether you're washing dishes, everyone gets paid $15 an hour. We don't differentiate between Still senior enough, staff yeah. and, and junior staff. So that's, I guess, and we communicate that on the bottom of our menus to to our customer base because we feel like it's an important part of our narrative and we're putting a stake in the ground to do the right thing. Do you find that you've had to increase your pricing based on that? Or it's that tough because we're in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So I think, you know, an avocado so much flexibility. An yeah. avocado toast. Um, I was going to say that. Our, I didn't want to well, be rude. You know, I'm, yeah, like, well, I'm so glad that it's, yeah, on, the, I'm look, so glad it's it. on the menu. It's our like number it. one seller yeah. and we pimp it out. We have yeah, different yeah. versions with yeah. fancy stuff on it. But and avocado toast you know, is great. I live we, off that. It's like Earl Grey tea and avocados. Like if I got cut in half, I'd have a big seed in the middle of me. But we, so we, the most we can charge for an avocado toast in Pennsylvania is eight to ten dollars mm -hmm. um, and you, in New York you can get away with charging oh, 15, 14, yeah. 15, yeah. 16 so mm. um, we're not necessarily actually uh, yeah. charging more for the product no. we're charging as much as we possibly can before people sure. are like oh this is a bit too fancy yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and then with you do you feel like when you're putting this out into the world and you're saying you know we are doing this because of this reason you're getting do you hear it back from the customers? Do people come in and say, I came here because I read this about how you were treating food waste or because you how yeah. you were treating your, your employees? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's definitely a captive audience that I'm engaged with at the moment, which is which is very kind and wonderful. Um, I find it fascinating that people have come in and they really want to eat something dry aged. They really want to eat some fish offal. And it's funny that uh, one fish only generates two eyeballs and one liver and one heart and one <laughs> spleen. And it's kind of like, you know, there is only so much that I can produce. And it's wonderful that the secondaries have become, you know, like desirable, highly desirable and prized. Um, and so oftentimes, and, and that's kind of in part why we had to do the butchery, just to increase our, our, our buying power somewhat. Um, and also to create a different uh, stream for secondary uh, waste and things because, you know, we want to give people, you know, a great product um, that's indicative of our, our thoughts and our mantra and stuff. Um, but as well, if there's scrappy bits left over, we can make pies, we can make lasagnas, we can make, you know, fish cakes and all that sort of stuff. Um, but people are coming in really wanting that experience of eating something that previously has been wasted. Um, and, and also they, they want to see what I've been putting, like the photos that I put up, they want to have that experience as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's a pretty powerful tool, social media to, to get bums on seats. <laughs> really? yeah. It is a really important thing. And so we, were, we were actually talking before this, um, about the human labor mm. that goes into restaurants and that's not just physical hours spent. That is, uh, the, the emotional toll. Yeah. That, that that goes into this, of being an owner, of being someone who works uh, somewhere. And the lens is changing a lot, um, what the consumers are learning about, what is happening um, behind the, you know, back in the kitchen yeah. or so. And both of you are people who are really sensitive to this and how you, you treat your people. Can mm -hmm. we talk about uh, that particular aspect of it, about yeah. the hours that are, are put in and what you wish people knew more about that. I, mean, I think it's interesting, Josh, that you said, you know, you started with three chefs 
Yeah. But then you actually doubled that. You yeah. put on six chefs merely because the hours were too intense. They were getting burnt out. Yeah. They were stressed. Like I was exhausted. And They're, like I've got yeah. three kids and my mm-hmm. wife and like everything, uh, you know, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. and, and as well, like it's, it's almost like a lazy decision as a chef to just kind of go, all right, well, I cook. And so I'm just going to stand here on the stove and I'm just going to cook the whole time. And, you know, there's control there. There's, you know, like the wheels keep turning and, and I know that I can keep doing it. But even then, I like a few months in, I was like, oh, my God, I'm exhausted. Like, I, I can't keep keep going like this. And that was the decision to to do that. Did you double your wages bill? Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, my wages at the time of opening, I feel like they were like 35 or something, which is wonderful. Like, it's pretty good. And then we went to 48 or something when, when we decided to push push the staff up because as well, like like everybody knows, revenue is kind of king and that's what kind of brings all the costs into line. And when the revenue kind of dips a little bit, when it cools off um, and, and the shininess of the restaurant kind of fades a little bit, then, you know, you watch <laughs> food, food rise and wages rise. But what we noticed was food declined and, and wages went up and it was only be through having extra sets of hands that we could start, you know, playing around with, with what was going in the bin. So I remember yeah. when I talked to um, Douglas McMaster recently, who really comes from a, a really thoughtful place about food waste. He's incredible. Yeah, yeah. he's and he had trained, um, he, he was in Sydney in the, when he had sort of this grand revelation about waste. And uh, Silo that is opening up in uh, in London is, is going like to be... In like four days or something, or yeah, maybe now. It's gonna be, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, and it's going to be uh, zero waste. But what he found is he actually had negative food costs some months because he wasn't wasting anything, and he could spend something like 40% on staff, which was incredible. So it seems like... Yeah, there's that, ways of offsetting. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. That is a tremendous thing. There's a, a particular reason also that you care about. Um, you know, when, when Melanie was telling me about your story originally, I was yeah. thinking, oh, that's so cool with the with the fish butchery, and that is really yeah. innovative too. But she was telling me also about your personal story and how you are so driven um, because yeah. of what you experienced early in your life. So Yeah. So, yeah, it was a couple of days after my eighth birthday, I got diagnosed with a tumor on my kidney. Uh, so I had cancer when I was a kid and it was a couple of years of chemotherapy and like a lot of stuff, uh, which was, yeah, challenging <laughs> for, for everyone, uh, my family in particular. But uh, I feel like, yeah, put like a rocket pack on my back a little bit. I felt like, <laughs> you know, if you can kind of endure that kind of adversity and, and you know, it gives you a little bit of perspective on, on things, even at eight, right. <laughs> eight or 10. Like, I mean, it, it just gives you a little bit of context in terms of if you want things to happen, like you, you kind of got to go out, go after them. And, and so I, I do keep a list of things, um, on me most times, um, to continue writing down things that I want to achieve personally and professionally. And, you know, I mark them off as I, as I get them done. So I, I try to work like that. Like I try to make sure that there's a list getting ticked. I think it's extraordinary that you've achieved so much and you're actually relatively young still and you have three children. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) How do you manage that? Yeah, I mean, I've got the the most significant wife. <laughs> um, she's what's her name? <laughs> she's Julie, Julie Nyland. So she's beautiful, and I I miss her a lot. <laughs> um, but uh, she's just the superwoman that makes the wheels turn both at home and at the restaurant. Like she's the one. Like I get to do this wonderful stuff. I get to converse and I get to chop fish up. I get to 
communicate on a on a very um i suppose celebrated level like where it's you have the opportunity to meet people and they're inspired by your work and you know and that's wonderful but then you know <laughs> my wife's kind of you know we've got three kids and and just to keep the wheels turning in the restaurant and and things getting paid and tax and like you know all those things that just we don't celebrate that there's no award for that and so I there feel like there should be, be. Like, what is <laughs> um, the Michelin star yeah. for being the invisible muscle behind yeah. the house ninja yeah. like <laughs> if, if, here for that like there would be no book without Julie there would be no restaurant without Julie it's it's a two-way street it's you know um she's more significant than than what I am the only reason I can do what I'm doing is because of her and she's a pastry chef I met her um when I was 20 and she was 18 and we were cooking in a cooking competition, but we weren't against each other, which was kind of good. Um, Who won? She, she, well, we both won. I was a fourth year apprentice and she was a first year and we both won our kind of categories. And um, yeah, it's funny later, um, <laughs> later on, we started this pop-up kind of, uh, we started doing some restaurant pop-ups around Sydney and we called the business first and fourth. So that was cool. Ah. Um, but uh, yeah, she's, she's wonderful. And, and I mean... Yeah, I, I just keep repeating myself, but she she does um, she does make the task simple. Uh, yes, I do the physicalities of turning up to work and interacting with staff and customers and you know being the manager per se. But then you know Julie's there for you know payroll, like marketing, branding. You know, she's creating these t-shirts that I'm wearing and like you know working with you know people about the book and sending books to America and working out what the shipping is and then lining up codes to make sure they go to the right place and not another place and all this stuff that's just like immense and never ending. And then having, you know, three kids under six hanging off her as well. Well, I mean, and you're both people who work with your spouse at a restaurant. So the division of labor, uh, I mean, do you comment on each other's part of of the business, like question for both of you, because yeah. I'm so interested in business <laughs> partnerships and how that gets negotiated. Like, mm-hmm. do you comment on what is happening in the other? Are your, is your partner allowed to talk about uh, the part that you're in charge of? How does that go? Um, I joke that I'm glad that I still have a day job, which is this job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so I'm really only in the restaurant on weekends. I My other joke is I'm the not so silent partner Um, because I have an opinion, particularly when it comes to the menu and ideation and creativity. Um, But my husband has been working in hospitality for over and retail for over 25 years. His customer service skills are brilliant. His patience is brilliant. And that is not my jam. Um, You get stuff done. (laughs) um, But because we're both really opinionated about the product, I think if we worked together seven days a week, we probably wouldn't be married anymore. And I'm quite happy to be very honest and, and say that openly. Um, yeah. And I try not to comment too much um, on his management style or yeah, yeah. his leadership style a little bit now and then, but yeah. give him a little poke. Um, yeah. But we probably don't work as no. closely as you and Julie do in the background. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's tricky, like opening a restaurant in a capital city, like mm-hmm. in, in Sydney and you know, the rent and, and all of those things and the pressures. And, and I suppose as well, Julie and I thought leading up to taking the restaurant, we'd have like a business partner. Like it was never our ambition to set out to personally own right. something. It was like, that was really scary. And then overnight, literally overnight, we, we went from having a partner to kind of not. And, and it was 
it was the best thing that could have happened because we were able to exp express ourselves a little bit more freely. And when I'm happy and, and creatively in the right, you know, frame of mind and things and, and all of that, then it's wonderful. Like if I get down about it, I, I know, and this is something I'm continually trying to work on. Like if I get down about uh, the way I'm performing like creatively or how I can't make a decision around people in, in the business or it's more communication. Communication is the hardest part um, to for a chef who has from the age of 15 through to 31 now um, uh, to to learn, like what I was saying before, this PhD in social working mm -hmm. and, you know, <laughs> how to be a manager and all that business and all that stuff. Julie alleviates all of those stresses through her, like, intelligence uh, about business management and that's something that she's just inherently picked up um you know and she's able to alleviate the stresses of the business um and and allows me to be free in terms of my creativity and the way that i work with the team and how we can keep the wheels turning and how like social media marketing guy taking photos of everything every day like yeah. it's it's taxing like it's absorbing the amount of work that um has to happen so it does have to be a two-way street but then as well I need to make time when I get home that it's kind of like just I need to separate, you know, work and home because it becomes this big blurred patch of like I'm mm -hmm. always talking about work and it's very difficult to um, get out of that. And, and we find, you know, we never having normal conversations. It's always regarding the restaurant. Yeah, I do think have, that's do the most beautiful articulation I've heard of uh, <laughs> like the restaurant relationship. Yeah, between like a husband and wife partner. Yeah, don't you think? Yeah, yeah like really, because I, <laughs> I talk with I, I I really love talking with people who like both halves of a, a couple are yeah. are in that, and they it seems like they have to designate time and rules almost. We are not allowed to talk about. Yeah, and that's Julie. Like she's like, put your phone down, and like you know, I asked you about this. And can you answer about this? Don't like segue back to that. So it's good. Like it is good discipline. Like I, I otherwise it would just be this free flowing, always restaurant chat. Yeah. And it's because you are immersed in it so much that, it, that you think you're in this bubble and it's all regarding this. And you kind of, and the kids are helping a lot with mm -hmm. that because then how, you can kind of. How old are they? Uh, my boy's about to turn six and then I've got a four and 10 month old girl as well. Oh. Girls. Would you want this life for them? Would you want them to go into restaurants? Oh, like it's challenging because I don't feel that we can suggest that the restaurant world that we live in right now is the restaurant world that they will live in if they so choose to do so. Like I'm by no means nor Julie going to be saying, okay, here's St. Peter, good luck. Like <laughs> you, guys, you guys do it now because, no, I, I feel like the, the road that the restaurant world is in and food in general is going to be uh, morphing and changing a lot. And so it may turn out to be this significantly professional professional driven uh career choice which could be you know wonderful and and the those days that have gone by of 18 hour days are just mm -hmm. and i feel like even now like i mean that's so that's just not happening as as much now um that as what it used to and so we are on i feel like we are on the right track um but yeah it's definitely their choice in terms of what they want to do and I feel this right track is actually going in the right direction because of people like both of you who are willing to talk about the tough stuff. And it's not just this this glossy, glamorous mm. restaurant kind of thing. You're showing 
the guts. Well, that, but then that comes down to media as well, because yeah. there's there's been media in existence for all this time, uh, and the conversations haven't been eared towards celebrating the why and the how, uh, as opposed to mm-hmm. wow, this recipe is great, and you know what you're doing at the restaurant and all the stars and all the, you know, Michelin conversation and the celebration of accolades. And there was no understanding of how you got there. Like, I mean, if you're a three-star place or a two-star place, it requires a certain amount of labor and, you know, effort and all of that. And that was never conversed about. So I, I feel like the media and, you know, general public, they're asking more questions now. And so, you know, to, to get more specific and, and concentrate down on, on the right questions and things is helping spur on uh, the future of food uh, in the right direction. So I, w- I will also note something particular about um, Australia and chefs. I'm part of, because I, I write and, and talk and sort of act on, on restaurants and mental health a lot, I'm part of various networks on Facebook, and there is an Australian chef network that is so increasingly so, but for the past couple of years, in uh, very articulate and driven about mental health in yeah. Australian uh, restaurants, because I know there have been some really significant losses, uh, yeah. especially over the last year or so. So can you, and yeah. you're both familiar with this, can yeah, you speak yeah. to that some? Um, yeah, so like, I've, I'm very spoiled like to work in Australia, period, but to have the network of people in Australia, like, uh, you know, all the chefs, whether it's top level or, or lower level, everybody gets around you. Um, there is no, there is very little negativity in Australia. Like when, when we opened the restaurant three years ago, everybody knew how big a deal that was for us. Like, um, even if they didn't know us, like there's this kind of, wow, they've gone and done that themselves. There's no like big, you know, bank kind of sitting on them throwing cash at them to make it work it was kind of like we're we're going to do this and they all turned up there's all these people who i never thought i would get to feed a meal to turning up to our restaurant and it was incredible um you know and then you you go to certain events and things and people come up and give you a hug and it's just kind of like wow this is amazing and so i'm very fortunate that i i have a network of people um even though i don't know them personally but then the ones that i do as well they always support you and there's there's always a conversation that you can have with anybody like if i wanted to call anybody tomorrow like in australia and talk about something they would pick up their phone there is very few people that won't answer their phone um and and that's wonderful for me because from a business point of view and learning this um i suppose regulation and and all of the kind of nuts and bolts and intricacies of running a business like the hospitality business then um Phone calls are really important um, to, to make sure you have access to that kind of communication. Um, I think you're lucky that you have that network. Do you feel like that's a more recent thing? Because, I mean, I know, Kat, you were alluding to, you know, we've seen quite a few people pass over yeah. the last five years. Um, you know, my husband and I knew Jeremy Strode yeah. quite well, um, and that was a shock watching that happen yeah, that from afar. Um and, you know, there have been others since then and that's why these incredible networks and Are yeah. You Okay um, is, a, is a really strong network in Australia and I think maybe the chef community is a bit more open about talking about yeah. w- that they're having a tough time than, than they were previously. I don't know, yeah, I don't want I, to put I, words in your no, mouth, no, but no, no, do you no. feel like I, that is yeah, the case? Yeah, and, and I mean, it's not sad or upset. Like it is, I don't know, it's kind of, it is challenging to think that something as significant as what what has happened forces us to think more about it but yeah. it definitely does and 
you know, this this sense of pick up the phone and call anybody at any time and they will answer as, you know, I feel only become apparent in the last, you know, maybe 10 years. Like, but I mean, even wonderful conversations that I got to hear from Tetsuya and like he would go to Armando Pocuaco, uh, Bon Ricardo restaurant most weeks, like to just have a meal and they would just sit and eat a meal together. And that was just always just touching base and how was your week and all that sort of stuff. And so so important to position yourself with a little network of people that you can constantly talk to um uh because like i said before communicating isn't a, a chef's necessarily their best skill set right. and so to, it's, it's a very shut up and cook mentality in the states at least yeah yeah and like standing under fluoros all day and just kind of you, you become you know isolated to a degree um and as well the restaurant industry i'm quite fortunate that i've got a wife who who came from it and understands but to not have that support and to just go and do your job and you know a girlfriend breaks up with you a boyfriend breaks up with you it's like good luck it's hard like that that that's very hard to um how do you shake that how do you and you don't have a weekend and you know so hence why the rosters of the world now are getting modified and adjusted so that people have continuity and days off like back to back um you know you're not always cleaning down in the evening you can have you know a night off or you can ask for a morning off to sleep in or see a family member or you know and i think as well with chefs we forget to call our family yes like and i'm the first to uh, put my hand up and say that i'm terrible at it and i i feel really bad but um it's challenging you go through the the week and then you realize okay that's another week gone by where i haven't decided to call mum or dad or my sister and uh yeah, I feel like I'm getting there slowly, but that that's another big thing. You need to kind of keep up the conversation, the communication. Otherwise, it's um, you know, it's a lazy approach and and you can get yourself into a rut very quickly. Yeah. It gets it gets dark real quick. Yeah. What do you do for self-care? Like what's your uh-huh. Do you have like another superpower? Do you like knit? No. Or crochet <laughs> no, or wish. yoga or like Uno with wh- my what's son. your thing? Um, <laughs> oh, I wish it was golf. Um, uh, and I wish I could still play cricket and all that sort of stuff. But uh, sports, team sports are super hard. Um, I think I'm enjoying now seeing my son start to, um, and I say my son because he's a little bit older, um, uh, start playing soccer and basketball and doing things like that. So I can kind of tag along and be the weird dad that's like <laughs> running around the soccer Aww. training oval while they train. And I'm kind of like, feel like I'm all athletic. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, to, to engage in what they're doing, I feel is my, and it sounds shitty, but like a hobby, like because... Yeah. It's you know, shitty. however you have to do professionally it, speaking, like you kind of consumed for the majority of your week doing doing work, but then to go outside and like play basketball or to, you know, um, play with my daughter in the sandpit and things like that. Like that's wonderful, and more of those moments I wish could happen. But um, that that's kind of what I crave every week. So, yeah. And I got in the wrap it ups. Uh, yeah. Thing. So you get the last question before we move on to the questions that we <laughs> ask everybody, and which you can both answer if you yeah. want to. So, what is your final question for Josh? Oh wow, oh, the pressure! I know. <laughs> <laughs> I just asked him what his superpower was. Yeah. <laughs> Dad, well, Dad I'll, life. Then I'll ask you one uh, quick question: What do you both wish that outside of Australia knew about Australian cuisine? I think I think more about the indigenous community, honestly, because we we see it as you know we i think globally speaking we see it as a multicultural nation which we should because it is like you know i thought i heard mark best say something like there's 400 
languages spoken in Sydney or right. something. I have no, like I could be getting yeah. that horribly wrong, but it was incredible to kind of hear that kind of getting discussed. But, you know, we have some of the best Thai food in the world, if not the best. We yeah. have like some of the best Chinese food in the world. Mm. Like there, there's so many different, uh, you know, and not only speaking food specific here, but like we've got so many different cultures to engage with. Um, and, and that's exciting uh, for, for broadening your mind in terms of growing up uh, in, in, a di in diversity. But uh, with regards to what people sh like need to have a look at is, and, and us in particular as, as a whole, we need to look more at the history of, of food with, with where we've come from and the indigenous people of the land in Australia. We need to be talking more about that. We need to be celebrating more about what they did for so long because they were there. Yeah. <laughs> they were there forever. Yeah. And, you know, they had one of the most sustainable food systems on the planet. Um, you know, they were baking bread before the Aztecs. Like they were, you know, it was in, like what they did, we could take a lot from if we knew more. Um, and I feel like, yeah, the more we can delve into that, then the, the brighter our future is and, and the more robust our, our food culture will become. So that kind of touches on, yeah, two, two things, things that yeah. I was going to say is like the fun fact that I always tell New Yorkers is that the best Asian food outside of Asia is in Australia. And yeah. there's usually like, oh, that can't be. New York has the best food. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's definitely like one of them. And then and the other would be, you know, it's for a long time, I feel like in the 80s, indigenous ingredients were treated like a novelty. You totally. Know? So, ooh, you know, it's like Pat Nurse just, and Pat Nurse <laughs> yeah. just yeah. put up from Gourmet, yeah. like ex-Gourmet Traveller, mm. but Pat Nurse uh, just put up like his menus um, mm. that he found and right. and he was putting up like one of these menus that I saw and it was kind of, it was so novel the way that they'd written like, you know, Kwandongs and like, yeah. you know. Bush plums bush or plums pepperberry and, yeah. or, you know. Um, River mint and like yeah. all this stuff and yeah. it was kind of just peppered all over yeah. this menu and it was never really it was seen as foreign like it's yeah. kind of like, but it was know. also i feel like done in a really gimmicky way gimmicky, yeah. and yeah. i think you know people like ben um and hamish yeah. in sydney yeah. you Dan know Hunter there's you know chefs that are now using traditional greens and herbs and just weaving it into their yeah. everyday menu without making such a big deal of it um and then th that leads on to my other point that like I always tell people that kangaroo is actually really freaking delicious yeah. and you can buy it in the supermarket of, yeah. in Sydney. Like you can go to Coles or Woolworths, you can buy kangaroo loin, you know, in the butcher section, it's yeah. cheaper than beef or veal mm. or chicken. It's really lean. It tastes like venison. Tastes and my like husband venison. and I used to cook it once a week. Um, Fun fact, it's about like 80 bucks a kilo here in New really? York because it just gets flown in and yeah. frozen and it's really expensive. It's like a novelty. But it's yeah. the one thing that I miss. I really, really miss eating kangaroo. Somebody please bring some of that for Melanie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that would be lovely. Um, so I have some questions I ask yeah. everybody. And Mel, if you feel like bringing in on any of this. Um, so you put all this effort into putting this message out into the world. Yeah. And uh, you... You know, you work hard at the restaurant. You're being a an evangelist for fish. Uh -huh. What is the selfish thing that you want? Selfish. Yeah. What is the? And I, I ask this question because it's. I think if you say something out into the world, it helps more people get this get this thing for you. And it, and not selfish in a bad sense. But what is the thing that well, just make will make you happy? Well, I think in part we'll continue the conversation further and and go hand in hand with yes being selfish, but then as well. 
um, hopefully creating change, like positive change would be to write another couple of books and to get a show where I can mm -hmm. actually communicate on a level what's happening from the point of the fishermen, um, why they aren't getting the return they deserve for their fish, um, why is it that we're handling fish on the boat in a certain way and not the better way perhaps, uh, and then what's happening from the point of getting the fish to the market and then what's happening there, and then what happens, uh, comp like uh, the way it's getting sold to people. Like at the butchery, the reason for doing this butchery thing, and I'm sorry to go too far I with know. this, but it's like the reason we called it fish butchery is because butchery is to suggest the dressing and slaughtering of an animal as opposed to mongering, which is to deal and trade in a commodity. And so to push those two into a box together, you've got this wonderful conversation that can happen where you're not only selling people a piece of fish, you're selling them confidence that they're going to go home and have a great experience. And so to encapsulate that whole thing into, you know, a show where I can actually speak more broadly to a bigger market um, to affect positive change so that we can start making an impact on stocks of, of fish globally. Like we're, we're literally only taking probably 20 species of fish out of the water around the world. But there's so many out there, but because they're the brands of the ocean, they're the Nikes and the Adidas of the water, <laughs> it's like we're always going to go back to them. We're not going to think to go and buy the cheap pair of trainers that are in the back. Like, um, So, yeah, so that's a selfish thing. Dear Netflix, <laughs> please, please make this happen yeah. because I think this would be such a special thing. The next one is the speed round. Again, both of you can weigh in. Yeah. What's your comfort food? Yeah. Schnitzel. <laughs> yes, because you're also German. <laughs> Correct. Yes. I'm just going to give a one-word answer. Yeah, yeah. Schnitzel. Mm. This sounds lame, but like avocado on toast, and I eat like a lot, <laughs> like a lot of avocado, like and like bad, bad amounts of salt. So like stuff like that. I love that. <laughs> and do you make it yourself? Yeah, or yeah. Do, or and it never gets smashed. It's always sliced. So yeah. I love that. <laughs> what is the last meal that you had that made you emotional? Ooh. Were you emotional oh about the meal you had on Saturday? Oh night? yeah, Blue Hill, Stone Barns. Mm. My God, I was like, you know, even I before eating the there. food, I was like <laughs> weeping. Like it was so like out of body experience, like unbelievable. The Dan Barber is, as everybody knows all around the world, how how incredible he is as like the leader and the change maker that he is, he, that he is. But um, to go there and uh, be allowed to do a workshop with their whole team and do like a full butchery breakdown of a fish and kind of somehow inspire their team, which was incredible. Um, but then to be sat down for a meal, having dro driven around the farm on a John Deere with um, <laughs> Dan Barber on the back of a on the back of a truck was amazing. So that that was a very emotional meal. That was incredible. One that I wish I could have shared with my wife as well. But um, yeah, amazing. I'm going to go on the playful side of emotion because actually we were talking That's about emotion. <laughs> we were talking about Wiley Dufresne before, yeah. and we were talking about um, how my husband and I had been to the last meal that WD50 had mm -hmm. um, in. 2014 and I just remember the both of us were just giggling our way yeah. through that meal because it's it was so playful and yeah. so unexpected so emotion not in the sense of tearing up oh, but yeah. emotion in just like sheer delight yeah. and just 
could not stop giggling. It I was mean, so I f- delightful. I felt that way on Friday morning when I ate his donuts for the first time. Oh, like, they're so fun. They're amazing. Doos is incredible. Like yeah. it's like this little geeky lab of donut making. It's incredible. So yeah. we had a good time there. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I love that answer. So what is the last time that somebody cooked for you in their home? Um, People are very scared to yes, cook for exactly. my husband and I. Um, and I used to talk about this all the time. Like, it is very, very rare that we get invited over for dinner. Mm. Very rare. Even now that we live in the States, like back in Sydney, zero, like we were always the couple that threw a dinner party. Yeah. And sometimes it was more like a potluck style and people would bring over something, but they'd be scared to bring wine because yeah. my husband's in the wine trade and they were like, whoa, we're going to be judged. And they would be scared Fearful to that you'd write me. a review. <laughs> and I'm at, yeah, yeah. I'm at that stage now where I'm just happy for someone to cook anything for me Correct. because they've cooked it for Correct. me, but it is actually very rare. It's the most honest it's form rare. of like, it's this wonderful human gesture. And that's why I cook now. Like that's, mm. that's the only reason why I cook is because of that gesture of feeding someone. I think that's extraordinary. But my, I suppose one that I got to go to was my friend Marty uh, his wife is my my wife's best friend oh. uh, and they just had a baby and so it was like a month later uh, and they decided to we're, we're ready um, to kind of see the light of day again so they invited us around to their place and Marty who works for Google and so he's not <laughs> a chef by any means and like quite He's lovely in the sense that he engages with me a lot and like, oh, how do you cook a steak? How do you, you know, and and it's awesome to kind of help him. But we turned up, he had the Ottolenghi simple book mm-hmm. out on the bench and like he'd found a really good recipe and he did everything to the like milligram and this, it was such a good meal and it was incredible. So kudos to Marty for his awesome cooking. That is lovely. <laughs> that makes yeah. me so happy. Yeah. What living musician would you want to cook for and what would you cook for them? Oh, Got to toss that living in there, so everybody. Yeah. I don't know anything about culture. <laughs> uh, I'd cook a schnitzel for Robin. <gasps> she would be so lucky. You get mistaken for Robin on occasion. I'm oh dear Robin. Go over to Melanie's house or go to the cafe. Which did we actually say the name of your cafe? It's called Tucker Mates. Oh, really? It's Tucker. Yeah, it's Tucker. called Tucker. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I would cook fish and chips at Fish Butchery for Post Malone. For? Posty. Post Malone. Because oh. he comes, he comes he, to Sydney every now does? and again. And he went to my, my really good friend Julian's place called Butter, which is a fried chicken and champagne and sneaker place, which is all God, very that's, random. That's but, wonderful. you know, Posty's there eating fried chicken, so I feel like he can come have some fried fish. He's so. all cleaned up now, right? Like, yeah, he's looking sharp. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was so surprised. I saw some pictures. Maybe his hair was – it was it was something. New perm like, or yeah. – Yeah, something I was really surprised by. But, no, he's cool. He's, yeah. Oh, wait, final question. You have five uninterrupted minutes for self-care. Like everything's taken care of, mm. you know the the kids are kids are fine. The like the dog's not doesn't need yeah, anything. Yeah. Nobody's calling you. What do you do? <laughs> uh, Please say eat an avocado yeah, by no. yourself, like on the couch. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> like I found myself yesterday with that kind of time, and I we're staying in Williamsburg, and they have this little kind of balcony bit outside, and I just sat out there and I stared for a bit which was kind of cool, but I always find myself with a notepad and pen next to me. So if the opportunity to write words on paper, then that's a good thing. I don't know what they're, whether they're relative to food or whatever. I just enjoy handwriting. 
So um, I I like doing that, I which is that. very strange. That's but, interesting yeah. to hear because I can't read most chefs' handwriting. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. <laughs> it's I'll show you my handwriting later. It's good. We're actually about to do a feature in the in the February issue that is a chef's notebook. So um, That's it's cool. going to be cool to see if we can actually decipher the handwriting. Although she has actually really good handwriting. Cool. Melanie, darling. Oh, my self-care is it's actually a combination of nature, like getting outside and the dog. So <gasps> it's, <Hobart>. yeah. <laughs> um, so in, in a spare five minutes, it might involve like a belly rub. He's not mine. Um, and a walk, a walk down the trail. We have this beautiful trail that's five minutes from our house. It's part of why we moved out of the city too, was mm. just to have that decompress. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, like autumn, it's just my favorite season of the year. And coming from Sydney, like, autumn isn't as visceral. No, <laughs> it's like not as I, in your face. I the got leaves told don't it's change. It's like, oh, wow, you're going to New York then. It's like they do fall so well. And oh, I'm yeah. like, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, and then <laughs> yeah, I come over do, in the yeah. plane and it's like all yeah. orange. I'm like, oh, my this, God, this yeah, is incredible. Intense. Something very joyful about looking yeah. at a tree that's like gold and russet. And, and then still a little bit of green on it. It's like yeah. amazing. Yeah. The stone barns Leaf was, peeping. Yeah. yeah. Stone yeah. barns was like so overload sensory. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Get yeah. your cozy little jumper. You yeah. know, like have a, <laughs> a pumpkin and a latte or something like that. Thank you both so much. And, and my co-host, <laughs> Melanie Hanchi. And uh, people can follow you on social. At Mel Hanchi, H A N S C H E. Yes, thank you so much. And I'm going to uh, press you into service uh, more frequently. This has been really, really fun to get to do this. And Josh Nyland, thank like, you. You've got this wonderful new book, holding it up to camera for people who are just what listening. It is so gorgeous. And the back, too, you can really see what. <laughs> That uh, what fish butchery looks like. It's called the whole fish. Where can people get it? Uh, like we just did a beautiful chat out at Archistratus Bookstore in um, Brooklyn, uh, which was amazing. But it should like Amazon and and it's available everywhere. My website's mrnyland.com. So like there's the books are there. The fish weights are there. There's like fish paraphernalia for, for everybody's <laughs> you know enjoyment. But um yeah no I'm very proud of the book and my first one and yeah hope it goes well so far so good. And people can find you on Instagram at Mr. Yeah. Nyland. Mr. Nyland. And then we've got St. Peter Pado and we've got Fish Butchery. So, yeah. yeah please, everybody. I, he's, he's putting such an important message out into the world. Go to your local uh, fish place. Let them know about this book. Let them know about yeah. his Instagram. And and that, so they can know that there's, there's a different and better way to do it. It's probably going to help the earth, help people enjoy fish more, which is the whole point of it. it. So thank you everybody for listening. And thank you to our producers, Jennifer Martinick and Hallie Tarpley. Thank you to Douglas Wagner for a delightful theme song. If you want to, you know, listen to some more of this, you can find us on all the different platforms on, on Apple podcasts, on Spotify, on uh, just every device. Uh, you can, you can pretty much find it all of all of your feeds and you know what if you leave those stars you leave those comments that really really helps us pop up in the algorithm all hail the algorithm <laughs> and so more people can listen and we can keep doing this and if there's somebody you think that we should be paying attention to um find me on twitter at kitten with a whip and let us know who we should we should be talking to what we should be talking about you can also find this all on uh, foodandwine.com especially if you go to the foodandwine.com pro page sign up for the newsletter you're never going to miss an episode of this and you can also find us on youtube most importantly take care of yourself till the next time and eat good fish thank you <laughs> yeah.